Here we go, chapter 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. And Israel summoned his strength, sat up in bed, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me, said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Mm -hmm. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, <laughs> as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in the inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's son, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, These, these are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. And Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never even expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left, and Manasseh in his left hand, toward Israel's right, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son. I know. He also shall become a people. And he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, by you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God, make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, bow your heads and pray with me as we get going. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you that you are still speaking through your word to us. Um, 
God, I pray for your spirit to be upon this room, um, to be upon my words, that you would help us to see um, how you are speaking to us and, and what you're doing in our lives, that you are a good father who loves us, that can be trusted. Um, father, I pray that our, our hearts would be softened, that we would hear that is of what is of truth and um, what is useful for living our lives in Christ, and that you would um, just do a great work in, in every heart here, that we would not only walk away from here knowing more about you, that we would also walk away um, loving you more and having um, a desire for a stronger relationship as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, today's text, we see somebody be, being given favor. Um, working in a middle school and high school setting, I have the opportunity to see this a whole lot um, with the kids. It just happens all the time with the popularity contests and, and everything else. And some of it's even sanctioned by the school and things like uh, senior superlatives when you have the yearbook and everyone's voting for most this or that. Um, and one of the ones that kind of blesses the most favor upon somebody is most likely to become president. You might have had this in your yearbook as well, right? Um, and so who did you guys pick for most likely to become president? Was it the kid that had the most friends? Was it the kid that was the, the best looking? Was it the kid that was a great communicator, had all A's and that sort of thing? Because most likely, in my experience as a, a school administrator and working in schools now, that's usually who's picked for that. Um, but I think God's way challenges us in thinking of that because often God picks who we don't expect. Often God picks the person that, that we don't foresee coming, just like we see in this text here, um, where the younger is put over the older and given the stronger blessing. And so that's what we're going to see in, in today's text today um, as we go along with it. And so um, do we have the slide by chance? No slide. All right, that's okay. So we're continuing our passage within uh, Genesis here. And so this part of it is called living in light of God's plan. And today's kind of one word summary of it is trust because God is, is trustworthy. He knows what he's doing. He has a plan and it is, he is enacting that plan. Um, being an educator, I couldn't stay away from a little alliteration in our kind of outline. So um, the first part is that God's kingdom, the kingdom that he's building here on earth, stands in contrast to what kingdom, um, what, how we would define a kingdom should be. The second point is that our expectations and our values contradict what God's expectations and values and really just his plan is. And then lastly, God knows that's hard, and in his graciousness, he offers us comfort, and he offers us consolation. So you might have heard it referred to as, I'm sure, um, God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, and this in a lot of ways stands in contrast to what we would expect. There is a rhyme and reason to God's kingdom. We like to know that there, there's purpose for everything, right? And sometimes it seems like there isn't purpose. However, I would challenge you that in God's kingdom, there is always rhyme and reason and purpose in what he is doing. It might just be different than what we would think. I've read enough fairy tales now. I have three kids of my own and have um, watched enough Disney movies and everything else like that to know that the kingdom of what we say is right and good is not how the kingdom actually plays out that God is building here on earth. In today's passage, Jacob is declaring a blessing over Joseph and Joseph's two sons. And this blessing is a big deal. Um, in the culture at that place, a huge emphasis was placed on this blessing, um, the blessing of the firstborn son. It was more than a goodbye, and it was more than a legal will 
um, it was a future promise. And this is especially true in the context of God's people. Um, this was the promise of the first promise that was given to Abraham. Um, in fact, this is the first time that God's not directly involved in the passing on of that promise. And so you have, um, you have this promise being given and uh, Jacob is passing it on. And this goes along with the expectations of culture, what should happen is that the older should be blessed. That's the normal order of the day. And in fact, this was an uncontested fact of the culture at the time, that the greater portion, the greater blessing, the goodness, the most promise was to go to the eldest son. But God in his wisdom doesn't always work things the way that culture says is right or the way that we say is right. And this is yet again, this is happening, that the younger is put over the older. Um, we've already seen it many times in Genesis, just up to this point. Abel was approved over Cain. Jacob was chosen over Esau. Joseph, who's the second youngest brother, has the least, second least claim over anything. He's given favor over his brothers, as we've seen over this series. Here we see Ephraim and Manasseh being grandsons that are being put as if they were Jacob's own sons. And in fact, the text says that they're put in the same place as Reuben and Simeon, who are the firstborn of Jacob's own sons. And then finally, as if that's not enough, we get a whole other layer of that um, where, e where Ephraim is put over Manasseh, even though that he's the younger. All this is evidence that God's kingdom is so different than what we would imagine. This isn't just an Old Testament concept either. It continues on throughout the whole Bible, continues to this day. But even in the time of Jesus, the Jews were expecting someone much different to come, right? To be their deliverer and their rescuer. They were expecting somebody to come in power, to overthrow Rome and finally restore things to how they thought it should be. They were expecting this kingly noble that would come and rescue them. But really what they get is a baby in a manger. Instead of commanding powerful soldiers... They find a savior who goes and grabs a ragtag group of a bunch of fishermen and a tax collector and builds his group within there. And instead of marching the feet of an army, he washes the feet of these fishermen. They expected to serve a king who actually came to serve them and yet again reversing things how they should be. Instead of getting a king that rides on a stallion, they get a king that rides on a donkey. And instead of a king who reigns from a throne on earth, they get a king who reigns from a cross while he is on earth, completely overthrowing what they were expecting. This continues all through the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 1 says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is in fact the power of God. It's not just Israel or the people at the time of Jesus who get it wrong. It's us too, right? Just look at the way that we view blessings. How many times have you heard, you know, the hashtag blessed was a big thing a couple of years ago. And what did that go along with? Typically, it was these earthly blessings that we all talk about, right? I, God has given me a lot of these things, as I'm sure many of us in this room has too. And so what do you say when somebody says that? I know for me, you know, somebody compliments, oh, you have lovely children when they are acting lovely and all of that, right? And <laughs> I just, you know, oh, I'm so blessed, you know? Kids at school are all the time, oh, your wife is so cool and she's so pretty, Mr. Sifter. How'd you do that? I'm like, well, I, you know, <laughs> it's a mystery of God to some extent, but also, um, 
but typically I say, you know, God's just, God's just been really good. Oh, you have such a lovely house. You know, God's been so good. As if like God would be any less good if I didn't have these earthly blessings in that way, right? And we see that in Jesus, in the fifth chapter of Matthew, he gets right to it and turning our ideas of what blessing is upside down, right? The Beatitudes just are a whole nother way of looking at the blessings as Jesus would define them. Whose is the kingdom? Jesus asks, right? The strong, the faithful. It's not what Jesus says. It's actually the poor in spirit. The persecuted ones are who the kingdom of God belongs to. Mourning, which is something that we avoid, is something that is actually a blessing, according to Jesus. The meek inherit the earth. Who is satisfied is another way that gets turned upside down. Is it the people with a nice house, a nice car, a nice wife, some nice kids, a nice retirement, a nice vacation each year? That's not how Jesus would, read, would define it. It's actually those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We struggle and we disagree with this, right? We bump up against God's plan in our life because it's not what we would expect. It's not the kingdom that we would have brought in if it was left up to us. It's just not... And, when we see this, our, we get to see a chance that our values and our expectations, they go against what God's values are and what God is actually doing. So look at verse 13 with me. <clears throat> it says, And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And so it, Joseph is very, very intentional with setting up how he thinks that this should go, right? The, the narrator of Genesis put, went through a lot of length to say how intentional Joseph was with putting the youngest son on his right so that he would, I'm sorry, did I have that right? <laughs> I'm putting the oldest son on his left hand so that he would be closest to Jacob's right and vice versa, right? And so, and then there's Jacob who in verse two tells us had to summon his strength just to sit up in bed and this old man is on his bed, and he crosses his... That's not an easy thing for me to do. And I'm a pretty young guy who's not, you know, on my deathbed. And so Jacob is going through, very intentionally, carrying out God's plan. It's a complete reversal and contradiction to what should be happening, what was the normal order in the day. But Jacob was doing this intentionally because it was no mistake. In verses 17 and 18... As the, after the blessing is being said, we see that Joseph saw this, or saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim. It displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. We protest, right? God's values contradict what we think should be going on. And so we protest with this, and Joseph reacted with it. And in fact, the verse 17 says that he was displeased. The word in th that was used here, displeased in the Hebrew, is an interesting word. Um, it can mean a few different things in the Old Testament. First, it can mean angry, and that's easy to see within the text. It's easy to see how um, Joseph would have been angry. It could mean morally, Joseph found it morally offensive that his father was doing this, as if he wasn't the guy with a technicolor dream coat that was given to him and the favor was laid on him, right? But Joseph is upset because it's not about him at this point. It's about doing what he expects should happen. Um, figuratively, that word can mean that it smells bad. 
which is an interesting way of putting it. There's just something foul about what is going on here. Or it could mean something that you just know is bad or evil. Jake was intentionally executing God's plan here, but it didn't match Joseph's expectations, and Joseph didn't like it. He grew angry with it. How often do you and I do this, right? How often are we Joseph when things in God's kingdom and God's plan don't align with the way that we think that it should be going, the way that we expect that God should be working? Perhaps for you, it's um, you work hard at a job for many years. You put in a lot of hours and you expect I come to expect promotion and recognition, and then you grow angry when that doesn't happen. What lengths do you go through with your family to budget money, right? You try to line everything up and say, this is how it's going to go. You plan every dollar you plan to give and how you're going to spend in that. And then when you're left in the hole at the end of a month or at the end of the year, you are confused and you're crying out to God, what, what is going on here? This isn't the way that it's supposed to be. What about when you go through all this length to, to plan a date night, you get babysitters and all of that, and instead of having a great night together, there's ends in conflict, and that upsets you, right? We raise our kids to go a certain way. We're very intentional with them for the years that they're in our house, and even though we've been faithful, perhaps it's not playing out the way that we think that it should be playing out, and so we grow bitter towards the Lord as he's working out his plan. Maybe you set aside time to spend with the Lord and then it gets interrupted and then you grow upset and confused as far as why God would be doing this. Um, how long have you been waiting for God to accomplish something that you've been praying for that's seemingly in his will, but then it just doesn't happen? We grow weary, we grow discouraged, we go angry, just like Joseph did in this moment here because we forget that God's faithfulness to us is working time and time again. And we forget his loving kindness and his plan sometimes is a little bit different than how we would expect or sometimes it's majorly different than how we would expect it to go. Joseph expected the older to be blessed. He had these expectations and he expected God to follow them. But God's kingdom doesn't always work the way that we should. And you know what? Praise God that it doesn't, right? Praise God that it doesn't go with our plan because let's zoom out here and take a look at the bigger picture of what actually happens in this world. The world teaches us that you work a job, you get paid a raise, or get paid a wage. And to the same extent as well, what the Bible says is that you have a, a wage that's paid to you as well for sin. And that wage that is paid is death. And Romans is very clear that the wages of sin is death on that. And it says that we have all fallen short. Me, you, the pastors in this room, everybody, have fallen short of the glory of God. But it also teaches us that while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly, and that God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So then in this upside-down world, praise God that it doesn't work the way that we would expect, because God gives that mercy because he is working in a way that we wouldn't ex expect him to work. And this leads us into the final point of what to talk about today here is that God provides the comfort and the consolation for us because he knows the vulnerability and what sin has done to our hearts that we're likely to push up against what he's doing and he knows that it's not easy. He's seen it for thousands of years ever since the first humans were created in the Garden of Eden walking with him. They thought that they knew what was better than God did. They had a different plan than what he set out to accomplish, and that's how sin entered the world. God knows what his creation is like. Jesus himself 
entered into the confusion and the upside-downness of this world and experienced that. The night before he was crucified, Jesus was in the garden praying that if there's any way that this cup should pass from me, Father, let it pass. Jesus doesn't want to go through with the way the Lord has worked things out, but yet he says at the end of it that not my will, but your will, and he submits to what God is doing. Jesus knew that he could trust his father because his father is good. His father has a plan and his father knows what he is doing. You and me, everybody in this room, we can trust as well because it's the same God that was working back then that's still working today. He's always good and he's always doing what is good for us in our lives too. We see God's loving kindness represented in, in Jacob's fatherly comfort to his son right? And in, in the only way that a fatherly gentleness could come about, if you look at verse 19, it says, right after Joseph kind of objected to how Jacob was doing things, Jacob said, and his father refused and said, I know my son, I know he too shall become a people and he shall be great. Nevertheless, his brothers shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. Those of you with kids in the room or if you have observed people with kids in the room, you know what it's like when your kid is just having an all-out temper tantrum over something silly, right? They just are in despair of what it might be because they don't understand. I'm doing projects around the house all the time and I leave a screwdriver out or a hammer out and I don't know what it is about a one-year-old, but they are going to that tool and they're going to start waving it around in the air. Um, and I take it away and then they just they throw a temper tantrum right there. And I grab them in my arms, and every, each one of them has gone through this. I know, I know, I know what you're upset about, but it's okay. It's going to be okay. And that's what Jacob is doing here with his own growing son. It's this beautiful picture of what happens with a fatherly comfort. But more than that, there's a much more consolation that's offered in verse 5. If you go back to verse 5 with me, it says, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. What Jacob is doing in this moment is he's adopting Joseph's sons as his own. He's making them and pulling them in as part of his own family. And they're not just the redheaded stepchild of Jacob's family. Instead, he puts them in the place of the firstborn of his own sons with Reuben and Simeon. They are taking the place of the firstborn, of the favored within that. And we see this played out because eventually Israel's tribes of the northern kingdom are referred to as Ephraim as a whole because he becomes one of the most blessed of the brothers with that. And so even though God's kingdom contrasts with this kingdom, we're offered this great consolation in that we're adopted by God the Father and called one with his family. As I was reading, um, preparing for this, I was reading some Tim Keller and he made an incredible point about this adoption that you and I have uh, as a whole. Um, talking about birthrights, Colossians points out that Jesus is the firstborn among all creation. He's the firstborn among all men. And in the Gospels, Jesus refers constantly to God as the Father, right? That's how, that's the number one way that Jesus refers to God is that he calls him the Father. But there's one most notable place where he doesn't refer to God as the Father anymore, and that's on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
We know that on the cross, Jesus is giving us his righteousness, right? And he's taking all of our sin on himself. But also in that moment where Jesus stops calling God the Father, you have this time where Jesus is also not just giving us his righteousness, but he is giving us the right of being firstborn. He is giving us the birthright as well on the cross. And just like where we said that this birthright was a huge deal in ancient times, it is for us today both practically and just how things out. Because Hebrews refers to the church as the church of the firstborn in Hebrews 12. Well, how can this be the church of the firstborn? Certainly some of you were born in different orders within this family. However, because Jesus has given us that birthright, we are all the church of the firstborn, all given the favoritism, the promise, and the blessing that comes with being the firstborn child. That's an amazing fact that we get to think about, that you, sitting in this room, Christian, are God's favorite. And, and the person beside you is God's favorite because in the, in the infinity that is God, that's possible for him. I come from a family of five. I'm the, the youngest of five, and all my brothers and sisters joke around about how my one sister is, is the favorite, right? Because she's given all the favor. She can do no wrong, that she is kind of the apple of the eye of our parents, if you're thinking, well, my parents didn't really have favorites, that's probably because you are the favorite within your family, right? Because <laughs> it's just something that happens. But it's a pretty amazing thing that we all joke about this in my family because we're jealous that my sister can do no wrong in my parents' eyes, right? But here in the kingdom of God and the fellowship that we have as a church, there is no reason to be jealous amongst ourselves because we are all given the favoritism, we are all given the right of the firstborn that comes with that birthright. It's one of the most powerful pictures of grace that we're given in all of the Bible. And so this being transferred to us, this right of the firstborn, it allows us and empowers us to live in a way that's glorifying to God, to trust our Father because not only are, is he our father, but we're his favorite son or his favorite daughter. And that empowers us to live a life that we can trust God, that he knows what he is doing because he is good and he is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, for your word and the, the truth of scripture that um, we are all your favorites in this room, that you're doing something great amongst your children in this room and that... Um, Lord, I pray that you would help us and empower all the people in this room and um, to live a life that's glorifying to you, to live a life that trusts you, no matter where we are at with our circumstances, Lord, whether they be great or they be in difficult circumstances, that we can trust you because you are good. You have a plan that's been shown for centuries in your creation, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.